I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Andy Rowe Show. In 2001, Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg launched the epic miniseries Band of Brothers. Then in 2010, they teamed up again to release The Pacific. Now they're back together again in 2022 with Masters of the Air, Donald L. Miller's true story about the American bomber boys that flew the flying fortresses over Germany in World War II. Miller has worked closely with Hanks and Spielberg on their previous projects and is going to reveal details of what you can expect from Masters of the Air. Hope you enjoy the episode. Before we start, a massive thank you to our sponsor this week, Sons, who helped make this show happen. You know how important it is to keep your immune system as strong as possible, particularly coming into the cold and flu season. The guys over at Sons are always looking out for ways to help you with your health, and they've done it again with their new Ultimate Immune Health Supplement. It's formulated from 11 powerful ingredients and includes all the key vitamins, minerals, and amino acids you need, like D, C, B, Zinc, but its special ingredient is the beta-glucan Wellmune, clinically proven in 12 scientific trials. Another study showed a 71% reduction in the number of individuals reporting cold and flu symptoms. So if you're already taking a multivitamin or are looking for something to strengthen your immune system this autumn, then check out suns.co.uk and use the code ANDY30 to get a massive 30 quid off your first order. And importantly, by using our code, you'll be supporting the podcast and the work we do. Donald Miller, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you, Andy. It's a pleasure. Your book, Masters of the Air, I've read it twice now. Very, compre- very comprehensive. Did you buy it twice? <laughs> I did. <laughs> I did. I brought it on the audio book and then I brought the hard copy. And my, and my fiance, Jackie, was like, you're listening to this on the audio book. What the hell? Why do you need the hard copy? And I was like, I just, I just need the hard copy. You've got to have the hard copy. As well. I could hear the cash register ringing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> It'll fund your trips over to the, to the UK so you can come over and uh, you'll probably be flying over business class anyway because I'm making it into the, uh, the third installment really of Band of Brothers, isn't it? It is, yeah. Uh, Band of Brothers, uh, 10 years apart. Band of Brothers is 2001. We're celebrating that anniversary uh, in September at the World War II Museum in New Orleans. And then then came the Pacific 10 years later, and uh, we reaped quite a few Emmys at that. We had 14 nominations, I think six winners. And HBO, who we were doing it with at the time, said, uh, let's do another one. So we did. And uh, now we're in Abingdon, just outside of Oxford, um, filming. Um, we got a couple episodes in the can already. Probably will wrap up um, around Thanksgiving, uh, late November. Obviously, it's it's about the American Bomber Boys, uh, specifically yeah. the United States Eighth Air Force. Mm-hmm. Didn't Churchill essentially just give them credit for winning the war? How important were well, they? Well, you know, he, I use a. I was searching around Andy for a title for the book. Churchill, of course, was a big supporter of the Air War and, you know, a huge advocate, you know, and, and uh, petitioner to Roosevelt to get the United States involved earlier in the war. But 
there is a comment that, that I use at the beginning of the book that uh, by the end of the war that the Americans were, he used the term masters in the air. Churchill always believed that, uh, like Eisenhower did, that Neptune's trident. Marines and infantry, the ground guys, the Navy and the Air Force, and it was a conjoined effort. And, and air did its part more than Churchill thought the public gave it credit for. I want to talk about the bloody hundreds because that's like the they're the main sort of characters or the main yeah, yeah. the main thing that that are in the book and, and going to be in the in the series. What were they called? The bloody hundredth. Well, they took a lot of casualties, but when you look at the record, they're not the heaviest hit of the uh, of the American bomb groups, but they bombed in an undisciplined fashion early in the war. And when you do that, when you get out of formation, you're vulnerable to Luftwaffe attacks, you know, from Fockewolfs and, and Messerschmitts. And, uh, and they took their hits uh, in short bursts and early in the war. And that's how they got, got that record. But later on, other groups surpassed them, if that's the word for it. What were their casualties like? What, like what, what were your chances like of getting through the war? Like how many how many sort of went up and came back? Like what, what sort of numbers are we talking about? They matched the general figures for the 8th Air Force. If you flew with the 8th Air Force, Harrison Salisbury kind of summed it up. He said you, you held a ticket to a funeral, your own. 74% of the men who flew with the 8th were casualties. That doesn't mean killed, but casualties. Statistically, your chances of making five missions surviving were zero. Really? Well, yeah, once you got to five, the numbers said you have a zero chance of surviving. The Air Force published those figures. Guys got a hold of them and they didn't publish them for public consumption. But uh, officers at the base um, and and intelligence had those figures and they got around and the guys kind of knew what to expect. I tell the story in the book about a guy named Louis Lovsky. Now, Lou was one of the first guys I interviewed. At the time, he was in his late 80s, and I was interviewing him in a Norfolk, Virginia hotel. So he had been a navigator, a little guy, but wiry, tough. He was on his first mission, flying over near Berlin, and they're hit by flak, and he bails out. Now, you had a choice when you bailed out if you were Jewish. You know, you had a choice on all missions to put H for Hebrew on your dog tag or not. Okay. And uh, he had the H on there. So I said, well, how'd that feel? Uh, you're in the parachute, you're heading down and you're going to be captured and, uh, and you're a Jew. And uh, he said, that wasn't my principal concern. I said, well, what was? He said, well, just before... I headed out to Europe, back in the States. I, I went to a store and I bought over a hundred condoms. And I said, you were that sexually active? And he said, no, I was a virgin, but I was really hopeful. So he's, he, and he stuffed these condoms in his dress uniforms for when he'd go to London. He hadn't gone to London yet. And it flew through his mind at that point when he's dropping over Berlin that, wait a minute, they're going to pack all my stuff up and send it home to my mother. She's going to open it up <laughs> and reach into those pockets and find a hundred condoms and wonder what kind of sex maniac she raised. Well, 
end of stories, turns out he was in the camp. He got captured and he was sent to a Stalag. And he kept waiting for guys for his group to get captured and come in and tell him what happened to his stuff. And they came in and said, rest assured, you know, as soon as we heard you were missing in action, we went to your locker, pulled out the condoms. Uh, we took them ourselves. Good lads. Your mother never knew. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a yeah. story. Yeah. Go back to speaking about the environment that they were fighting in. The environment must have almost alone been responsible for some casualties. Actually, most casualties uh, occur as a result of the environment. They're in an alien world, Andy. I mean, as I said before, nobody had ever flown into the 1930s over 11,000 feet because you can't breathe up there. So you need artificial support. You need oxygen, you know. Um, I mean, we're human beings. We need air to breathe and we need sunlight. And if it was a sunny day, that's a bad day for the bomber force because they're easily spotted. And the Luftwaffe is going to pay them a visit. But the key thing in these planes is that they're flying so high that the temperature drops dramatically. Example, if you're flying over Berlin in the winter, it could get as low as 62 degrees below zero inside the plane. And the plane's not heated. The other problem was oxygen deprivation. If you're fighting that high, you have a oxygen mask on and the way you knew you know it's if you've ever been on oxygen sometimes you don't even know it's flowing and but it had to be flowing for you to live so the pilot would they all had these interphones these little phones strapped to their neck and they neck mics and the pilot would always be checking on guys like how's the tail gunner doing how you doing back there harry and you had a little ball that bounced inside the uh the hose and you could watch that and know if the ball's bouncing, kind of like a bingo thing, you know. If that ball's bouncing, you're getting oxygen. But in the chaos of combat, when you got 16 Focke-Wolfs coming in on you real hard and you're firing a machine gun, you lose sense of taking care of yourself. A lot of guys, their oxygen masks would clog up. Now, how would they clog up? We don't think of this usually, but these guys, just like you and I, and ordinary human beings today get air sick. You know, a lot of these guys had never flown before. In fact, almost half of them had never flown before they signed up for the Air Force. And you vomit, and you vomit into your, into your mask, and the vomit hardens quickly because of the freezing weather, 50 degrees below, and uh, it prevents the oxygen from coming in there. You get lightheaded, you pass out. If nobody pays any attention, a couple of minutes later, you could be dead from oxygen deprivation can you talk me through the plane the flying fortress and sort of give me a give us a sort of a set the scene of of what you would have been going into if you were a flight if, if you're in there yeah Air well you know it it, it 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 looks like a monstrously large plane for the time but it's not that large it's very cramped inside it is called a fortress because it has 11 guns the argument was the dream of the air force planners false dream nonetheless, was that it had enough firepower if you grouped it in proper formation with a number of other fortresses in a thing called a combat box and present a pretty formidable front to, to fighters. And it did work at first. I've talked to German pilots and they said, we had a hard time with, they called them the Boeings because Boeing made the plane. 
we had a hard time with the Boeings, you know. The commander of the German Air Force said that uh, his men developed a, an early fear of attacking the Boeings. Now, inside the plane, if you start in the front of the plane, this is a guy who's really sucking wind. I mean, he's hurting in the front of the plane because he's, he's on a bombing mission, after all, and he's got his Norden bomb site, and uh, he's in literally sitting inside of a, a plexiglass nose of the plane. Now, that nose is not bombproof. It's easily penetrated, okay, and often was in combat. And that's where the Norden bomb site is. So he's got to get up on the site on his tiptoes, look down. It has a telescope, and it's a computer that adjusts for wind drift, movement of the earth, all this other stuff. And he's got to focus on the target. He's also flying the plane because the pilot turns when they go over the target, the pilot turns control of the plane to him. So he's maneuvering the plane into position and trying to get a good sight on the steel mill that he's going to hit. And in front of him are, are, are attacking German fighters or just a sky full of shards of metal, hot metal, which are the Germans called flak, you know. Uh, so that was tough on a bombing mission. You had to keep the bomber straight, too level so you could do you couldn't take evasive action no evasive action in the flat field that's curtis may who invented this idea of a combat box said it's the only way we can have consistently accurate bombing is if we avoid taking evasive action now that took a lot of balls to do that you know so that's, that's the navigator. He's in the front. And, and excuse me, that's the bombardier. He's in the front. And right behind him on his left at a little desk, it, it's a shelf really, is the navigator. Now he's going to get you to the target. Okay. He's the key guy. One mistake and maybe you're dead. They don't have any armor to protect them. They'd wear uh, later on a, uh, a vest with a metal shield inside of it that, that went all the way down past their groin. Um, everybody feared getting hit there. So these guys are all alone in the front of the plane. And then you take a, you walked out of there, you took two steps up and you're in the cockpit, pilot, co-pilot. The most dangerous position statistically on the plane. Can't tell you the number of guys who were beheaded by German cannon fire flying the plane like that's where the Germans aimed. Right behind those two guys was another officer. Uh, he was called the engineer. And he had a top turret that he could step up to, like on a little bench, and stick his head into the turret and his arms up there and fend off Germans coming in from above. Just behind him in the plane is, that was my father's position in the plane. He was a radio gunner. So you're responsible for radio communication. Now, if you got in trouble, you can communicate with base, but otherwise you're flying, you know, silent. Uh, you can't communicate with the base uh, and you're not supposed to be communicating with other bombers because Germans are picking up this. And all these guys are officers, okay? Now the non-commissioned officers or sergeants are in the back of the plane. They're sergeants rather than corporals or privates because if they get captured as a non-commissioned officer, they're going to go to a little better Stalag than some of the enlisted guys. And back there, there are, um, there's a ball turret gunner 
he's underneath the plane in a bubble. That'd be the worst place, surely. My God, yeah. Yeah, underneath the plane, oh. swirling around. And imagine how cold it was in that bubble. Could you have a parachute on when you're in there? Yes, absolutely. Right. Some of the guys sat on the parachute, and when trouble developed, they'd get out. They could they retracted the dome. Of course, you couldn't have that glass dome sticking out when you're taking off and landing in many cases. And sometimes they, they, they would retract these things. But you entered it through a hatch inside the fuselage. And you went in there and they lock, kind of locked you in down there. You, know, you can't control your bowels. You're on a 10-hour mission. So you wore a diaper. If you urinated, that froze. So that's a tough position in the plane. And a lot of times they couldn't get those guys out. And then up top, there are those two windows I described on each side of the plane. And there were gunners there standing up uh, with these big caliber machine guns, guns sticking out of those open areas. And then way back in the back of the plane was the tail gunner sitting all alone uh, on a bicycle seat and with a 50 caliber machine gun sticking out of the back of the plane to protect the tail. That's a 10-person crew. Later, when they developed radar to try to find and hit targets more accurately, there was a radar guy in the plane making an 11. And they were usually pretty tight units. The Brits had an interesting way of assembling these units. They put 300, 400 guys in an auditorium, say an old basketball court. Nobody knew anybody. And they'd say, you got six hours to form crews. And they do it on their own, just bullshitting with one another, talking around the Really? Room. Yeah. And the guys that were left, you know, they assigned them crews. You mentioned yeah. before about the bull turret guys, some some of them not being able to get out. Yeah. Well, it, I was going to say, uh, there's some amazing stories. And what catches you when you write this book and what really keeps you going is these amazing stories that are unbelievable until you these guys don't exaggerate in these things i find out you know because they you check it out and it's absolutely true there's lots of witnesses to this uh, four gunners for example um i told this story to a um to a benedictine monk and i'd gone to a benedictine college and he said he spoke to the monastery spoke to the monks and used this story about human fellowship and these four guys, gunners, sergeants, they all made a pact. They had formed a close friendship in training. That's where you formed your friendships in training. And um, that if any one of them got in trouble, they, the other three guys would not abandon him. So uh, one of the guys was a turret gunner, ball turret gunner. And he got, the hydraulics went out in the plane and most of the instruments went out. and. They couldn't get him out. The plane was paralyzed. It was crippled. Um, it had lost engine power. The engines were shot out. A number of the crew were dead. And um, the pilot hit the bailout bell. But they couldn't get their buddy out of the ball turret. So the last guy to leave the plane before the pilot jumped out um, saw these guys and said, let's go. And they said, you know, Frank's in the turret and we got a pact and we're going to hang with him. And that's the last anybody saw those guys. The pilot got out, that guy got out. 
And they went into a death spin, as it's called, and it crashed and, and, and the plane exploded and they all died. If a pilot got shot down over Europe, what, what were their chances like of escaping? Generally, the- early on in the air war, what you tried to do, you had an escape kit, this little kit that had a folding map in it and had tobacco in it and matches and a compass and things like that. That was of some help and a little language guide and uh, which nobody paid any attention to because nobody thought they were going to, I talked to a hundred guys about this. They said, expected to die, expected to get hurt, expected to get wounded, but never thought about being a prisoner. Never thought about that. Mm. Never entered their minds. But if you were lucky, you got picked up by a sympathetic citizen, a family that would hide you in the proverbial haystack or in the back of the house and got you eventually to a series, a network of safe houses that were located all over Belgium, mostly in France, run by women. This one woman named D.D. ran a line called the Comet Line, which is one of the more effective ones until it was penetrated by the Germans and everybody was rounded up and sent to a concentration camp where all of them died, including D.D., Another place that they used to land was in neutral Switzerland. Yeah, I wish we had that in the film. Uh, I've been lobbying for that, you know, but we're not going to have it in the film. Hanks and Spielberg are also going to produce a major documentary. Right. That parallels the story, but expands it hugely to include the whole air war. Oh, that's going to be great. Most of the stuff that you don't have in the film will be in the documentary. And we've already started work on the documentary. When's that going to be out? Uh, about the same time. Okay, cool, cool. The thing that struck me about working with Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg is their commitment to getting it right. Mm. Their commitment to the history. Their, their fidelity to the fact. This is a big, enormously complex war, and a lot happened. Why? And, and, and it was all dramatic. Why in the world would you fictionalize anything? Why would you have to fix? Mm. Use your brain to assemble the facts in a creative, exciting, explosively exciting film. And you don't have to make anything up. So every character in the film carries a name that is the name of the real person he's playing and does the thing that the real person he's playing did. So great people to work with who have enthusiasm for the project and fortunate for enough money. <laughs> it's a very expensive film, mm. sizable budget, maybe 250 million, maybe more by the time we're done. I mean, they built a pretty big base out there in, in Abingdon and it cost about 4 million pounds. And Spielberg had, had a company build two B-17s and they're real B-17s. I mean, the real bombers. Yeah. Daily Mail has been covering it very closely. You, you can tap on the internet and just go masters of the air. And you'll see all the pictures, the sets, and you see the B-17s there being hauled around the base. Amazing. Neutral Switzerland wasn't so neutral, was it? And no, it wasn't because they're in the grip. Wasn't their own fault with the exception of a number of, German-leaning, German-speaking fascists who were in high positions of power in the Swiss government. If we intruded on Swiss airspace, let's say a bomber gets hit 
on a raid near the Swiss border. And the only place to put the plane down is on is in Swiss territory. Well, you were captured, you were kept there, not technically as a prisoner, but you were isolated in the mountains in these old ski lodges. Uh, food was very scarce and very grim, uh, as it was for all, all Swiss during the war. Uh, they had a coal shortage as well because the Germans took most of their coal. You weren't mistreated horribly, except if you tried to escape. And if you tried to escape, they tried to gun you down. There was one camp there that I focus on because I found an airman who had been in that camp he was horribly treated. He was treated as badly as any concentration camp victim. He was beaten up by Russians. Um, he was sodomized. Uh, he was tortured. And the commandant of the camp was a Hitler fanatic, he dressed in a Nazi style uniform and had a mustache like Hitler's. He was a war criminal. He, he got his due after the war. The Swiss put a blanket over this. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't want to deal with it. I remember when I was doing research in Switzerland and uh, I was at a major archive in, in an unnamed city and I found these records for a group called the Fatherland Association, Nazi quasi-government group that would make, meet regularly and had a heavy influence on, on, on the central government. But I'm working these records. I'm sitting at my little desk and there's a you know carriage there with all these boxes and, and my white research gloves on and all that stuff. And I would leave, I was there a number, you know, a number of days and I would leave my cart there and just return to my seat the next day. Well, I come in one day, where's my cart? Hey man, where's my cart? He said, well, we moved the collection to another city. I thought to myself, bullshit. And so check it out. I go to the other city, take a train there the next morning. Ask them about the collection. They have no idea. Really? This collection. No idea. They had not received it. So they just, they just buried the record. And then I was contacted by the Swiss embassy. They didn't want it in the film. They wanted to have dinner with me. They didn't, they didn't want it in the book. But to no avail. You know, it's there. I probably get more letters about that. Because that's a surprise to a lot of people. I was, I was massively shocked when I read that. Not, a lot of people upset about that and, and particularly surprised by it. Yeah. And also not just the horrific nature of some of their camps and the way they treated some airmen, but um, they used to shoot at planes as well, didn't they? Well, they did. See, if, you're, if you had a crippled plane and you're trying to put down in Switzerland, usually what they do is they put up two Swiss fighters. They got their fighters from the Germans. So they looked German, you know, they were, they were fuckables. They escort you to the base and, and then before they send you to these uh, chalets, so-called. But the first thing they do is try to shoot you down with ACAC, with 88 guns. Yeah, it was dangerous airspace over Switzerland. And where a German could fly in and have a beer at Davos and leave two days later if his plane was gassed up and patched up. Um, I've got a lot of pictures of that. Really? Yeah. That's German trains true. carrying oil from Palesti would go st streaming through Switzerland. Again, the Swiss are in a tough position. I mean, if they don't cooperate, Hitler takes over the country. You hate to read your own stuff, but I want to just read you this very brief section here. 
This is how most airmen saw the air war and saw their plight. There was a story that started to get around the air bases. And a lot of guys thought it was real and some thought it was apocryphal, okay? But it's very close to a couple of scenes that actually happened. And maybe I can talk about those too. So you got this shot up plane, B-17, it's limping home to England. Somebody on the plane radios the tower when they get over the cliffs at Dover. And uh, it went like this. Hello, Lazy Fox. This is G for George calling Lazy Fox. Will you give me landing instructions, please? Pilot and co-pilot dead, two engines feathered, fire in the radio room, vertical stabilizer gone, no flaps, no brakes, crew bailed out, bombardier flying the ship, give me landing instructions. And the reply comes back seconds later from the tower. I hear you, G for George. Here are your landing instructions. Repeat slowly, please repeat slowly. Our father who are in heaven, etc. Here's another little account. So he's flying with the 100th bomb group. Here's what, he's, here's what he writes. He said that there was another plane in the group and that had been hit, he noticed six times. He saw all six hits from his spot. He said one 20 millimeter cannon shell penetrated the right side of the airplane and exploded beneath the pilot, cutting out one of the gunners in the leg. A second shell hit the radio compartment, cutting the legs of the radio operator off at the knees. He bled to death. A third hit the bombardier in the hand and shoulder. A fourth shell hit the cockpit, taking out the plane's hydraulic system. A fifth severed the rudder cable. A sixth hit the number three engine, setting it on fire. Now this is all in one plane and the pilot kept flying. The pilot in one, one of the planes was beheaded by a shell. His head's on the floor. Who's gonna fly the plane? They had to get the bodies moved to the side. The one guy actually, it wasn't beheaded, was actually, they thought he was dead, but he's alive. They get on the floor and, and start operating on their hands and knees and start operating the, you know, the floor controls to keep the, flame, the plane afloat because the plane's diving 16,000 feet and in a spin. And they pull it out of this spin and these centrifugal forces, you know, it, it, it felt like two tons on your body. They get the plane out of the spin. They race back up top. Most of the rest of the crew have been annihilated and the plane's in tatters. The windshield is cracked. So these freezing winds are coming in because of the wind bass, they had tremendous frostbite all over their body. And they get that plane back to England. They get it all the way back there and, and they try to land the plane and they couldn't land it. And so the control tower says, look, forget it. Put it on automatic pilot point it to the sea and bail out. These guys, these two guys said, um, can't do that. We got an injured guy aboard and he can't be moved. So they stuck with that plane and it crash landed near the American, near a Canadian base and everybody was killed, everybody. There was a um, Andy Rooney reports one where he was at a base very close to London. He got there and a mission was, was returning to base. The plane radioed in that it, all its mechanics and electronic systems and hydraulics had been blown out. So couldn't get its landing gear down. And there's a guy trapped, he's trapped in the ball turret. 
they can belly land this thing, but what's going to happen to that guy in that plexiglass compartment below the plane? Well, he's going to be crushed, right? So they put a priest on the mic and he said, look, son, you're going to die. And I'm going to give you, you know, the last rites right here because you're going to land and they can't get the gear down. And he said, I've been told that. So they started doing the rosary together and he goes in and was smashed to death. Uh, and I have a picture in the book of, of what the ball tear looked like after, you know, it had been smashed to smithereens, how they washed out the uh, remains of the ball terret and put the remains in a coffee can. That was all that was left of this guy. In a lot of cases, we employed self-censorship because these stories were just too horrible to report. A girl's waiting for her, a guy named Czech is the pilot. She's waiting for her young pilot to land. It's his last mission. And they're going to race off to London and get married. And uh, on the last run over the target, he's beheaded by a German, a German cannon fire. And the crew to protect her and protect him lands at a far end of the airbase, away from where she's waiting for him in a Jeep. Was that the story where the plane landed the wrong way on the airport to avoid landing? That's the one. Where the fiance was. That's the one. That, that's Czech. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we did interview a lot of guys. We went down to the 8th Air Force Museum, which is in Savannah, Georgia. And we're getting to the end of the interviews. And there's one more guy comes in, very timid little guy, about five foot four, thin but in shape, and very, very soft spoken. So I start by saying, you know, this describes some incidents. And he said, nothing happened to me of any interest at all. I said, oh, okay, it's the last interview of the day. There's got to be something here. As he said, I'm telling you, nothing happened. I said, well, I heard that your plane was hit pretty hard over Hamburg. He goes, well, yeah, we were, actually. We were hit pretty hard. And, and then he stops. I said, well... What happened inside the plane? He said, well, the pilot was killed. Okay, he got it in the neck. And then the co-pilot, he was shot. So we didn't have anybody to fly the plane. So the engineer was flying the plane. Then I heard all this noise and the plane flipped over. I said, it flipped over? Yeah, he said, flipped right over. We we're flying upside down. And I was in the radio compartment and I started to levitate. Describing of levitating in the radio compartment with German flak coming in from the right and the left. And that was his idea of nothing happened in the war. Oh, my God. So once you start scratching below that service, there must have been so many <laughs> exactly. other stories that he had up his sleeve. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, my God. And this was my question. How did they get into the planes the next day after suffering the kinds of these kinds of experiences yeah. I described there are survivors to all of them, and they weren't sent home. They flew other missions. That's the crazy thing as well, because you talk about a, there was a saying, wasn't there, about you dying on the tarmac? Yeah. Not in the plane. You're dying on the, you're, you die on your way to the plane. Yeah. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So just wrapping things up now, where do you rate the American bombers when it comes to who won World War II for the Allies? I know you talk about the Trident, but how important... How important were the American bombers? I think they were very important. I mean, a lot of people would disagree. Some argue that it was, they spent an enormous, to run an air air war is enormously expensive. And they sucked up a disproportionate amount of the uh, War Department's budget, just building the planes themselves and the bombs and things like that, little the training programs. But, and it wasn't working for a long time. But eventually, they do figure out a way to hurt, you know, the Germans. They got a plane in the war called the P-51 Mustang that was the best airplane in the war. And uh, it was fast and nimble and it had long distance. It had legs. It could go all the way to Berlin and back. It could go to Berlin and wait for the bombers and come back. And yet, it was, it was thought if you make a plane like this, you have to create so much space for gasoline that you weigh the plane down and it's not nimble enough to win a dogfight. Well, this plane could. It could win dogfights. And, and it was, it savaged the German Air Force. And we, as a result of this, uh, that plane comes and in the nick of time. We're preparing for D-Day. Eisenhower has moved to London. It's January, 1944. We're going to invade in May, it was thought. It was pushed back to June eventually. And we got to defeat the German Air Force if we're going to land. If the Luftwaffe is over the beaches of Normandy, there is no Normandy landing. Ike's not going to go. And he told the air chiefs that. So they had a, some of them grumbled about it, but they had to devote all of their efforts to destroying the German Air Force. And one way they did it, they hit. Um, aircraft factories and airframe factories and engine factories and stuff. But the real way they did it was to bomb targets, uh, psychologically important targets to the Germans like Berlin. Goering had said no Allied bomb would ever fall on Berlin. Well, they made a fool out of him by hammering Berlin repeatedly. But what the airmen found out after a while is they weren't over Berlin to bomb Berlin. They were over Berlin as bait, bait, or the fishermen's bait. They were there to bait up the Luftwaffe. Hitler couldn't afford to have them emulate, you know, Berlin. So the Germans came up and they met the Mustangs and the Mustangs slaughtered them. Not only because it was a better plane, but we had pilots that had more training than the Germans. The Germans flew till they died. So they took staggering casualties. Everyone talks about the most Germans who died statistically during the war were the U-boat crews, not so. They were the fighter, German fighter force. Um, they had over, almost 90% casualties. They not only didn't have enough pilots, they didn't have enough fuel because we finally started to hit oil. And we hammered and really hammered the oil factories. And we hit the transportation system. So they couldn't move much. So instead of hitting one steel mill, what they figured out was, wait a minute. To knock this steel industry out, we got to hit the coal mines. we got to hit the iron mines. We got to hit the place that manufactures the engines on the plane and then the place that manufactures the frames 
and then we got to move off and, and hit the airfields. Why not just hit the trains that carry all the things along the string of production? You don't want to hit them on the run because they're hard to hit like that. They had a, an operation called Operation Chattanooga Choo Choo, where they would hit the moving plane trains. But they said the trains assemble in big marshalling yards. Well, they blew out these marshalling yards. And so Germany couldn't move anything at the end of the war. And then they started to hit the oil mills. Precision bombing? No. We now had enough bombers, which we didn't have in the war, so many that they weren't even taking them at the end of the war. The, the bombers you see in pictures at the end of the war are silver, right out of the factory. They haven't even been camouflaged to brown. And there's enormous numbers of them, almost too many. So we can then hit a plant repeatedly, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And Albert Speer, who ran German production, said about the Regensburg-Schweinfurt mission, he said, yeah, they didn't destroy the ball bearings. But you know, if they had hit us five or six times, they'd have stopped all industrial production in Germany. Now, he blames the Allies for not doing that, but they were powerless because they didn't have enough planes because they lost so many in the first mission. But later on, they have enough planes so they can take the losses, absorb them, and get enough planes up there. So they kill the oil refineries by a thousand cuts. Bing, 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 bing. Just saturate bombing. And we knock out the German war machine. So in the Battle of the Bulge, their panzers run out, of, run out of oil. They build jets and they can't fly them. They had a, you know enormous range. If they could have gotten jets in the war, they'd have won the air war. But they don't. The jets didn't have enough fuel. And we put Mustang caps over the bases. They'd go up, we'd hit them with three or four Mustangs. You couldn't beat them one-on-one. -on -one. And they'd only fly for maybe 60 or 70 miles and then go back to base because there wasn't enough fuel and the pilots inexperienced. So in that way, we do shorten the war. And the Germans, you know, who were interrogated after the war and the industrialists who were interrogated as well as the generals, all own up to that, that that's the thing, you know, that we didn't have oil and we didn't have movement and you can't win a military campaign without oil and movement. And D-Day, and there should be, and just to conclude with this, I think there should be a monument to the, um, to the uh, allied airmen, British and American and Canadian and New Zealand and, and who flew those missions um, that those fighter fights that knocked out the um, German Air Force. They lost five, six times as many guys as died on Omaha Beach on, on the invasion day. And there should be a monument to them, you know, for the sacrifices. Um, they, they suffered for the cause on those very dangerous missions. Donald Miller, thank you so much for coming on the show. And I uh, can't wait to see your book on the screen. Yeah. Yeah, Masters yeah. of the Year. They're calling it anything. Is it called anything different in the, the film? No, we're going to call it Masters. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Brilliant. Well, we're really looking forward to it. And thank you very much for listening. If you liked this interview, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a review. And we'll be back again with another episode next week.